Well, it is good to worship with you, brothers and sisters. And uh, I'll ask if you haven't already to grab a copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be in verses 15 through 23. And we're going to consider a warning, a warning from the lips of Jesus for every follower. Now, if you've read the scriptures, if you familiarize yourself, not just with Jesus's teachings, but the totality of God's word, you know, as with life, not everything is cheery. Not everything is rainbows and butterflies. So we come to a good word, but a hard word, a sober word, a word that we don't smile at, a word that we don't take lightly, a word that has significant implications on your life now and forever. Jesus's sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the meat of it, you could say ended in chapter 7, verse 12. And now we find ourselves in the conclusion in this part of his teaching where Jesus is not just calling us to believe, to think, or to affirm his kingdom way. He calls true followers to live. He's calling us to action, to a choice. Verses 13 and 14, as we looked at them last week, put it very plainly for us. There are two roads a wide gate, an easy way that leads to destruction, a narrow gate, and a hard way that leads to life. Jesus himself, as we saw, Jesus himself is the door and the gate, and his kingdom way is the hard way. Will we trust in him and follow his commands on our life, or will we follow and pursue our own way? Consider for a moment this morning that you are, in fact, on a road today. You are, you yourselves, on one of two paths. It's not theoretical. You yourself are on a road with Christ or apart from him. Now, you may be familiar with the book Pilgrim's Progress. I am very sneaky and I mention it all the time in my sermons. It was written in the late 1600s by a man named John Bunyan. And it's a depiction, an allegory of the Christian life written by a pastor who was imprisoned uh, for being faithful. The book has been translated into more than 200 languages. And in English, there are several options, especially kid options, that I would recommend and you would be well served by. If you've not read it, start with a kid version of it. And my favorite is called The Dangerous Journey. And I'm going to put this here. We have uh, a couple versions of the Pilgrim's Progress uh, there for you to look at. And I would encourage you to find a copy. And if you haven't read it, well, it's probably time. Now, in the book, the main character, Christian, is a man who's on the narrow road. He's taken the dangerous journey, he's found the gate, and he's walking the hard and narrow path to life, to the celestial city. Early in his journey, Christian runs into a man named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. A man who fits much of the warning that we will consider in Matthew chapter 7. Someone who looks and sounds wise, someone who may be moral, 
someone who may even use some Christian language. But the fruit and profession of his life is such that he walks on the wide road to destruction. Has he been deceived? Have we? Here's a brief description of this man. Quote, Mr. Worldly Wise Man is not an ancient relic of the past. He's everywhere today. Disguising his heresy and error by proclaiming the gospel of contentment and peace. Achieved by self-satisfaction and works. If he mentions Christ, it is not as the Savior who took our place but as a good example of the exemplary life. Do we need a good example to rescue us? Or do we need a savior? So this character in our passage this morning is going to force us to look at our own lives, our own beliefs, our own theology, and our own practice and profession. And we consider the path that we're truly on. Our main point this morning is simply this. Jesus' words require an introspection. The Sermon on the Mount and the consideration of paths, trees, fruits, and professions that we will see in our passage, it's not for the purpose of pleasing the world, but looking at ourselves. So may God help us do it. Will you read with me, please, in Matthew chapter 7? I'm going to go back a couple verses and we'll start in verse 13. Our Lord Jesus says this. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or, or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are sober words. This is God's words. And we have two frames in which Jesus has us looking at our response to the kingdom call that he's been laying out for us in the Sermon on the Mount. So first, we are going to consider our fruit. 
We see this clearly in verses 15 through 20. Now, you might balk at the idea of this whole idea being about our fruit, personal fruit, because the first four words of verse 15 start this way. Beware of false prophets. It's only other people's fruit that we have to worry about, right? There are wolves out there. Be careful. There are diseased trees, bad fruit, and they will be thrown into the eternal fire. <laughs> worry about me? No, no, I'm, I'm fine. It, it's those people that I'm worried about. Well, I, I would remind us of the context of where we've been the last few weeks. We've been told to rightly and humbly assess and judge others in Matthew 7, 1 through 6. There are judgment calls to be made as we discern what is true and what is not. But remember, the prerequisite to pointing out specks and even the bad fruit of others is us removing the log out of our own eye. And verse 12, doing unto others what we would want done to us. The kingdom way Jesus set before us started in the Beatitudes that we are shaped by them. By the gospel, the Beatitudes are shaped in us. And when we are born again and made new in the gospel, we ourselves are going to be poor in spirit, humble and meek, merciful and forgiving. So we look at our fruit as we consider the fruit of false prophets because it's the kingdom character that Jesus has called you and I to. But we've got to talk about the false prophets. This word beware in verse 15, or better translated in some of your Bibles as watch out. Well, it's an imperative command from the lips of Jesus to a crowd. And there's some nuance lost here in our English translations. Uh, I would say it this way, in a little qualifier, every time I offer some translation, I just want you to know, I know it sounds like I translate Greek from a Southern Alabama boy. So I, I understand that, but, but let me say it this way, and I think it might hear more of the nuance that Jesus is offering. Hey, all y'all, make sure you keep on keeping on watching constantly for those false prophets. So it's this idea of the continual lookout, not just to a person collectively. Hey, all y'all, everyone. See, beware doesn't mean that we hide from false prophets. Beware doesn't mean that we attack false prophets. Beware doesn't mean that we pretend they don't exist because they do. We are to be Aware, conscience of them. Like our Mr. Worldly Wise Men, there will be some who come and speak contrary to the kingdom way that Jesus has laid before us. We don't walk around naively. We are aware that there are many messages out there. So Jesus commands us to discern, to make a judgment call on whether what we and others say and do is truly lined up with what Jesus has taught from this mountain. At its core, that's, that's what a false prophet is. Someone who speaks and lives in opposition to the true prophet, the God-man, Christ Jesus. But notice how these guys are described in verse 15. They come in disguise. They are 
in sheep's clothing, but truly are ravenous wolves underneath. If, if a false prophet was always easy to discern, if it was always so obvious, we wouldn't have to beware. Now, we're naturally observant. If someone comes to you with something crazy, pineapple belongs on pizza. False prophet. You know, it's obvious. Now, that, that's silly. But if someone denies something clear, orthodox, and plain in the scriptures, it's easy for us to call it out. Throughout Christian history, that's always been the case. So Arians, since the 4th century, have denied the divinity of Jesus, and, and some still do today. Pelagius, a monk in the 5th century, argued that salvation was something we could earn. And he denied original sin. Ah, humanity, not that bad. And some still argue that today. Even now, it's fairly easy to spot false teaching from the likes of contemporary writers and speakers who diminish the scriptures and the work of Christ. But what Jesus warns of us is not the clear contradiction, but the subtle the subtle ones. The warning is for those who look and sound the part. But a closer judgment in inspection is required. So much like in the Chronicles of Narnia, where in the last battle, the fake Aslan is seen only from a distance. And from a distance, oh, it all looks fine. But were you to get close, you would see that this fake Aslan is a donkey with a lion's skin draped over his back. And so it is with the false prophets of our passage. It's not always so obvious, so we have to look carefully. And Jesus has us to look at their fruit. But before we look at this idea of fruit, can we all make a confession of sorts? Do some of us sometimes not wonder if all this Christianity stuff has truly done a work on our hearts? Aren't there times where we sit in our thoughts and reflect on our lives and wonder if we have been self-deceived and maybe I'm the fake? We have a sort of imposter syndrome at times where there's a nagging feeling in the back of our mind that we've just been putting on the sheep's clothing this whole time. Maybe I'm just going through the motions underneath. I'm the wolf, perhaps. And maybe it's just me, but there are biblical categories of deception that we're going to see later on in this passage. Many false prophets truly think they are sheep. Many have good intentions. So this passage, it doesn't just direct our thoughts toward them, but towards ourselves. So in verses 16 through 18, Jesus gives us two kinds of trees and fruit that help us recognize and make judgment calls on whether others and we ourselves are truly God's people and God's instruments. Healthy trees bear good fruit. Diseased trees bear bad fruit. You will know and have discernment as you and others speak for God based, based on what they produce. Trees can't help it. They'll produce the kind of fruit depending on what kind of tree they are. And so it is with us. What's interesting about this idea of fruit is that it can't be merely what they teach. Good fruit 
is not simply moral living. If you think Christianity is about morality, well, you've missed the boat. Good fruit is kingdom living. Fruit is the output of belief and teaching and a life that the Spirit has produced in us. Fruit is the byproduct of your theology. So Jesus' command to us, as he's been giving us this kingdom way to live in over the last few chapters, is that we would beware of those who lead us in a way contrary to him and his teaching. And one of the ways that we can do that, be aware, is that we look at the life, the legacy, and the kingdom living of an individual. We can say all the right things, can't we? Some of us have gotten pretty good at it. It's easy for us and others to sound very spiritual and very moral and very respectable. We can throw out acceptable phrases in our Christian circles. Oh, yes, yes, Jesus is Lord. Mm. Yes, I will love and pray for my enemies. Yes, Jesus died on the cross and rose again. We can say any of these things. But what does my life reflect? Is there spiritual fruit of these words being true and what I actually believe and what I actually do? Or even more subtly, can I say these words but conveniently leave out other things that are necessary if I'm a true follower of Christ? Oh, Jesus is Lord. So is Muhammad. Oh, yes, Jesus died and rose again. Not literally. See, sometimes it's not what we say, but what we leave out that reveals our true theology. Can we and others make statements like this and not truly be Christian? Of course. Do you know that there are pastors every year who become believers? And that is the danger Jesus is pointing us to in these verses. Many will come and say true things, some true things, but their character and kingdom fruit will reveal the reality of their standing with God. Their character and fruit will be the true litmus test of which path they are on. And you might wonder why this is such a big deal. Who cares if there are false prophets or different understandings of spirituality? We live in a pluralistic age, right? Who cares if someone believes, teaches, and lives different than what Jesus has laid out in the Sermon on the Mount? Who cares? Jesus makes this clear in the following verses, but for a moment, key in especially, look again at verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. My friends, this conversation matters because eternity hangs in the balance, Jesus says. Eternity hangs in the balance depending on your response to this sermon on
How about now? Okay. Thanks. All right, I'm going to start all over the beginning. <laughs> you think I'm kidding? Well, I'm going to keep going. I think there's a tendency, and listen, you guys could hear me, right? Okay. If you're online, come to church on Sunday. We'll help you out. <laughs> guys, is there not a tendency in our evangelical circles to want to qualify these verses right away? Maybe to soften them? We point out, yeah, even faithful followers of Christ still sin. Some of us have some bad fruit, and yeah, it's me too. Or we point out that we're saved by grace through faith, not works. We might point to some exceptions where fruit wasn't able to be produced because it was the end of life, like the thief on the cross. I would simply remind us of the continual theme that we've seen in Jesus' greatest sermon here. His kingdom ways, and even his call for good fruit in our lives and in the lives of those who say they speak for God, it is a fruit and a byproduct of the Spirit of God. If we have failed, if we see a lack or bad fruit in our life, there is grace for us in the gospel of Christ. Go to him. Trust in him, lean on him. He will, by the Spirit, produce in us what he calls and requires of us. If you look at your fruits and your performance and you say, I need help, he will help you. But next in our passage, we see not just our fruit, but our profession. This is in verses 21 through 23. Now, not everyone, not everyone, Jesus says, who says Christian things, not everyone who even does Christian service in God's name has truly followed Christ. This connects us back to the prior verses. There is a narrow door and a narrow way. There are even many, perhaps well-meaning, false prophets who say some good things, but the fruit of their life reveal they don't truly know God or have been truly changed by him. Now, there's a couple important phrases in these verses that support and elaborate what Jesus has been laying before. So this first phrase, look in verse 21. Jesus says, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Clearly, not everyone who says Jesus is Lord will be in heaven, only those who do and follow God's will. Now, if you've been around Lakewood for any amount of time, you know that we unashamedly teach and proclaim that heaven is secured for those who believe in Jesus' person and his work. We do not achieve an eternal home, forgiveness, a new heart, and God's righteousness given to us by way of our work, our morality, our good deeds, our generous giving, our baptism, our church attendance, our acts of service. None of it, none of it earns us spiritual blessings. We are saved and changed by Jesus' perfect work, not ours. Jesus is enough. 
We simply believe, trust, follow, and cling to him. So what do we do with verse 21? We have to ask, what is the will of the Father? So in context, we always have to read it in context of our passage. And these last few chapters, the will of God has been the words that Jesus has given to us on this mountain. He's gone up on a mountain as the better Moses to proclaim a kingdom way and a kingdom law for us to follow. The will of the Father Father is simply a following of Jesus' teaching. And what do these teachings begin with in chapter 5? The Beatitudes. The kingdom characteristics of someone who is blessed and happy because they've been supernaturally changed by Christ. The will of the Father is our embracing of the Sermon on the Mount, our confessing of inability, our recognizing that Jesus' active obedience and fulfillment on our behalf, and being faithful followers that have been transformed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in our place as our substitute, that's what we cling to, quite simply. The Father's will is for you to trust in Christ. So our clinging to the good news of Jesus is the Father's will that grants us entrance into heaven. But notice the stern phrase from Jesus' lips in verse 23. I never knew you. Depart from me. Now, those who've gone through the wide gate, who've chosen the easy path, that have fruit that don't, doesn't display Christ in them, even you know, despite their Christian language or their Christian service, they are, at the end, rejected by Jesus. And it's a sobering verse. Truly a warning for each one of us in this room that claim to be followers of Christ. I, I heard a helpful illustration once, and it went something like this. If you were to walk up to Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., and you said, I'm coming in. I know the president. Or perhaps you find yourself in West Hollywood, and you walk up to the studio, and you say, I'm coming in. I know Dwayne Johnson, the rock. I know what's cooking. Now, you may know some things about these people, but what would happen if you said that? And the internet is surely a rich resource that tells us way more than we need to about their lives, but would you be granted an entering if you said those things? Can we just say we know someone and we'd be granted an audience? The question of verse 23 is not whether you know Jesus. It's whether Jesus knows you. And there is a way of being too literal with Jesus' statement here. He is God. He does know all people in their hearts. He's not saying he doesn't know of them. He's saying there's no covenant relationship with them. The implication of the term 
relationship, a relationship with Jesus that we talk about in our evangelical circles is one that implies and necessitates a mutual knowledge and a mutual rapport. The danger of our Christian subculture, the danger of our consumeristic age is that we can have a lot of information about Jesus. We can learn We can repeat biblical phrases. We can buy Jesus fish and put them on our bumpers. We can wear crosses around our neck. We can attend church. We can do all this and there not be a true relationship where we know him and he knows us in experience, not just in theory. Think of it in terms of our marriage relationships. There are many who know things about my wife. A doctor may know specifics about her eyesight. A neighbor may know what kind of vehicle she drives. An observer may know the color of her hair, the presence of children, and even the deeply flawed husband she's connected to. But you don't know my wife. Not like I do. I know more than facts. I know in experience who she is. I know with intimacy how she thinks, feels, and responds. And so it is in our relationship to Jesus. Faithful followers of Christ know him, not academically, but in experience as they have been changed by him and live for him. Verse 23, depart from me, I never knew you. It's clearly not someone who was once a Christian and now they reject me. Jesus says, I never knew you. Not I knew you for a little bit and you left. Rather, you were so caught up in your own doing, in your busyness, the facade of the Christian life. You failed to see that you were never really with me. It is possible to live a whole life doing things seemingly for him and end up leaving it all behind because you never really knew him. What's interesting is that Jesus calls people like that, like this in our passage, he calls them in verse 23, workers of lawlessness. In spite of walking a path they thought was Christian, in spite of calling Jesus Lord, In spite of prophesying and casting out demons in Jesus' name, Jesus says their works were lawless. They were void of a true following of Christ and his gospel. That's why they were lawless. They were lawless because they were disconnected from him. There are two confessions in these verses. Those who confess to know Jesus... And Jesus declaring or confessing, same word, of whether he knows us. Here's how one pastor remarks on these difficult verses. Spectacular deeds do not demonstrate that a claim of faith is genuine. Jesus does not call his hearers to redouble their efforts to ensure that knowledge produces action. On the contrary, he warns us against vain activity. Humble repentance and faith in Jesus opens the door 
to eternal life. Brothers and sisters, the conclusion of this Sermon on the Mount, all this language about judgment, assessing, paths, trees, fruit, and possessions, or professions rather, it's all the wise and kind words of a Savior who wouldn't just have us come and sit on a Sunday morning and nod our heads to the teaching he's laid before us in these last three chapters. Jesus' words require introspection, a thoughtfulness, a, you know, a contemplative nature in our, in our minds and hearts. His words are a warning for any who would claim to be a faithful follower. So whether it's a false prophet or someone who's grown up in a local church their entire life, do we know him in experience? Do we truly follow him? We are each on a path. Which one are you on? If you're here this morning and you think, okay, maybe I've been deceived and I'm not on the path that I thought I was. Good. I'm glad you're here. It's never too late to cling to Christ in a fresh way. So the good news for you and I, Jesus offers a warning not to discourage us, but to shake us from our dull and lazy thinking. To give a warning, yes, but a reminder of the life that we've been called to, a life of kingdom following, a life given to this better David, the true King Jesus, a life of faith, trust, and obedience that is produced in us by the Spirit of God. What he calls us to, he shapes in us. These words, this kind of introspection on our life, is not a threat. It's a sweet encouragement for you and I to take seriously the life we've been called to. It's so easy to just gravitate to what's smooth, the path of least resistance. It's so easy to cherry pick which verses we're going to follow and which ones we're not going to. It's so easy to point at false prophets and other people's fruit and other people's profession. And Jesus, he brings it all to the conclusion at the end of a sermon so that you and I would contemplate this morning. Oh God, am I with you and following you? And then the constant refrain, God, would you help me? Would you help me follow these hard words? Would you help me cling to the Savior I read about? And would you shape in me the high commands you've called that I've tried to obey but can't on my own? These words, this introspection, it informs our communion time as well. I'll ask those who are serving communion to come forward at this time. And just give me a moment here to connect communion and Matthew chapter 7. Communion is this act of remembrance. Remembering not our own performance. We don't sit here and take communion and remember, okay, have I achieved righteousness? But rather we come remembering the body of Christ that was broken, the blood of Christ that was shed on our behalf. We come with a sober mind, remembering that it's Christ's work that we cling to. 
And that's a good thing to remember when we read a hard passage like Matthew chapter 7. Because we have a tendency to beat ourselves up over the head. We have a tendency to doubt as to whether or not God is really present in our life. So in the wise providence of our Savior, he instituted communion so that we would look on him in his beauty and not ourselves. There was one theologian who would often say, for every look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at the beauty of Christ. Communion is an opportunity for us to look at Christ, his beauty, his work on our behalf. It's also a time of sober introspection, asking the Lord to search us, to reveal our true fruit, to reveal our true profession and the path on which we stand. If you are here this morning and you have not trusted in Christ, let this go past. The communion meal is one for those who know and believe and are faithful followers of Christ. Communion is a sweet opportunity to reflect on eternal realities. So I'm going to pray here. I'm going to ask our servants to come serve the elements and we'll sing a hymn together. Pray with me. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and we ask that you would kindly show us the beauty of Christ as we look at body and blood, as we remember sacrifice, as we Lord, affirm and cling to forgiveness and eternity that's offered to us in Jesus. Would we have a sober disposition? As Paul said to the Corinthians, would we examine ourselves? Would we take opportunity to confess sin? Would we ask in a fresh way for our feet to be carried? For our spirits to be directed? for our hearts to be enlarged as we follow your kingdom way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.